artworks go out into the world and they do the things that they do and people respond to them in different kinds of ways. And that makes the work grow. So the work has a life that expands way beyond its initial conceptualization. And I think that's the real richness of artistic research is the way that it can expand and be utilized and understood from different perspectives by so many different researchers. So the whole research exercise becomes something far bigger than the single ownership of a single researcher. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the head of Arts Research in the Bits School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Professor Mark Fleischmann, one of the leading exponents of performance as research in South Africa and internationally. Mark is professor in the Department of Drama at UCT and artistic director of Magnet Theatre, an independent theatre company established in 1987. His works for Magnet involve developmental projects in urban townships and rural communities, using theatre as a tool for social justice and transformation. His articles have appeared in the South African Theatre Journal, Contemporary Theatre Review and Theatre Research International, and he is the editor of Performing Migrancy and Mobility in Africa, Cape of Flows in the Studies and International Performance Series at Pelgrove 2016. Mark is also an active member of the Performances Research Working Group of the International Federation for Theatre Research and was co-convener of the group from 2009 to 2013. Mark, uh, welcome and thanks very much for making the time to speak to me. In some ways, this is a development and a follow-up to the paper that you presented at our ARA conference in January. And the question I'd like to start with, which I think will be of great interest to our listeners, is how have you moved from a person who was primarily involved with art practice through founding the Magnet Theatre Company. What has been the trajectory that you've gone through in becoming involved in the notion of artistic research or performances research? Well, I think that's to some extent got to do with the way my life unfolded rather than a conscious choice along the way. When I originally left university as an undergraduate, my intention was to be a theatre artist. So first as an actor and then as a director, that was where my work was heading. And the notion of research wasn't really on the agenda at all. I then started doing a master's degree, partly as a result of trying to keep out of the army. And the master's degree obviously introduced me to the idea of doing research. But at that stage, research in the arts and particularly in theater was very much a conventional approach where one read a lot and wrote some stuff and 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 produced a thesis at the end of the degree and i had an option to do i think it was something like 20 or 25% of the master's degree as a practical project which i did at the market theater in johannesburg actually because i was working there at the time in that project it really felt like an added extra rather than an integrated project that was part of the research. So the research had been done, and in a sense, the, the production that I did at the market was an illustration of what had already been produced in the research, if you like, from an intellectual standpoint. So the practice itself felt like secondary. When I went back to the university as an academic, mainly because I couldn't make a living as an artist, I was first very much focused on pedagogy and teaching, as all of us academics tend to be. 
And it was only after a number of years that the pressure to produce research resurfaced and the university decided it was time for the performing arts to become part of the, the general practice of producing postgraduate students and conducting research. And that's where the frustration of trying to marry artistic practice and an idea of research surfaced because that experience of mine in the MA of the practice becoming or being simply a kind of afterthought to what had been already done in writing was an uncomfortable one. I was also very aware of my, that my colleagues were struggling often with the idea that they had to write an academic article alongside the productions they were making because the productions themselves were being seen as somehow lesser or maybe deficient in terms of intellectual output. So I spent a lot of time thinking about ways in which we could motivate for the production itself to be understood as research. At first, it was very much based on the idea that the production was equivalent to research. But over time, and as a result of my interaction with colleagues internationally, it became clear to me that the argument needed to be something different, that it wasn't about equivalence, but one in which we could understand the practice itself or the production itself as being an intellectual pursuit. Not all practice is an intellectual pursuit necessarily, which isn't to say that it doesn't involve some degree of intellectual thought and process, but it doesn't necessarily have that as a driving raison d'etre or motivation. So for me, it became a question of how do we understand the things that we understand about performance by doing performance? What is it that performance helps us to understand about the world that other methods of or methodologies of research do less well? And that became a kind of driving force, if you like, within my work as an academic. So my academic research became about researching artistic practice, if you like, which now we call artistic research. Well, thank you very much. And was that the time that you became involved with the Performances Research Working Group at the IFTR? Yes. So once I started to research what other people were doing in other contexts, I realized that there had been obviously discussions going on in various other jurisdictions. And I remember very clearly going to my first like international theater research conference. And it happened to coincide actually with the first meeting of that working group in the International Federation for Theater Research, the working group on performances research. And I was there with a bunch of people from all over the world, many of who, whose writings I had discovered in doing my research. For example, Baz Kershaw, who was the convener of it at the time. You know, it was an opportunity to engage in conversation with people from around the world and actually to realize where the strengths and weaknesses, if you like, of the South African context fitted into the broader landscape. For example, I thought at the time that the fact that we had been cut off from a kind of international academic practice for some time under the apartheid system and under the boycott had meant that we went ahead and did things with our students that would not have passed muster in an international context. No one in South African university administration, for example, knew much about what we were doing in the performing and creative arts because, you know, they kind of said we were some kind of arcane, strange world unto ourselves. And as a result, we came up with our own systems of 
practice with our postgraduate students and our own systems of assessment. And a lot of these assessment systems of work on a research level were quite innovative when seen from the perspective of the international community, who had been very much bogged down by official academic bureaucracies in their universities. For example, one of the big things has been the, the, the separation of art academies and universities um, in Europe particularly, um, which created this thing where the artists were all sitting in the academies and the researchers were all sitting in the universities. South Africa never developed like that. We've had researchers and artists, practitioners inside the university department since day one. So that has created an interesting mix, which has produced uh, hybrid forms, which I think put us in a good position when we started to participate in those conversations internationally. And that report that you produced for the NRF, that's the National Research Foundation, on criteria for recognizing practices research in the performing arts, the report you did with Veronica Baxter and Temple Hauptfleisch and Alex Sutherland. Where is that situated when you look back on that? Because that was in 2008, wasn't it? The thinking represented in that report. How do you see that now? It was very much driven by the NRF's agenda to come up with criteria that they could use to assess academic applications that included a practice. I think that the, the NRF had been getting a lot of flack from people like us who were saying that we never get funded and their argument was always that they didn't understand the work we were doing and that we needed to help them to provide those criteria. Likewise, university administrators had often said that they didn't understand how we assessed our postgraduate students, for example, and that we needed to be more transparent in terms of the rubrics and the ways in which we went about assessing what was good research and what wasn't good research. So there was a kind of bureaucratic imperative that was driving that process. They pretty much threw the money at us to say, you know, come up with a set of criteria that we can use to make allocations of money from the NRF perspective. I mean, it's all a bit of a blur now in my head, but I kind of think that it wasn't driven, as it were, by true desire from the artist researcher's perspective, but from the bureaucrat's perspective. And as a result, I think it was limited because it had certain containing qualities, if you like. Maybe that's true of all bureaucratic systems that are designed to try to discipline and that's part of what the impulse behind the paper at the ARA conference was for me, was that to an extent, I feel like we went from trying to be helpful in terms of facilitating the bureaucratic understanding of what we were doing to a point now where I'm wondering whether we've gone too far and that in some respects, we blunt the actual power or efficacy of our research by these systems that we put in place or we've been complicit in helping put in place. That makes a lot of sense to me, and thanks for articulating that. Yet what I find really intriguing is throughout this time, you've had these two roles, one as the artistic director of a theater company that exists independently of the university, and the other, of course, as a academic, in fact, the head of the Department of Drama at UCT. And I'm interested to see that now the theater company espouses research. In your vision statement on the Magnet Theatre website, at the top of the vision statement is that Magnet Theatre seeks to celebrate a spirit 
of theatrical research. Has your work in the field of theatre and applied theatre been profoundly influenced by your work as an academic and a researcher? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a very symbiotic relationship between those two worlds, so to speak. I came into the university as a lecturer at a point where Magnet had already been in existence for some time. And I made it quite clear at the time that they were interviewing me that if I was to become a full-time academic, that I wouldn't give up working at Magnet. And the university always accepted it in some respects as a kind of quasi-research grouping or some of that kind. I didn't really understand what that meant at the time that I started because I was very much a research rookie. But over time, it became clear to me what they were meaning. And there were choices that needed to be made. One of the choices was whether to make the Magnet Company a part of the university, so to bring it into the university and make it an official research group within the university itself, which has been done, for example, first physical theatre company in Grahamstown operates like that within the framework of Rhodes. I resisted that for various reasons, one of them being that I didn't want to have to run the company through the bureaucracy of the university, which is slow and cumbersome and difficult to access the resources that are required. And also because the fundraising gets limited when it has to run through the university because funders generally don't like to kind of do that kind of proxy funding, certainly in the arts. So I kept it separate and and that created an interesting dynamic because it provided a freedom in practice, which on the one hand, you could draw on the status of the university, if you like, as a research institution. And on the other hand, you could also have a bit of freedom in such a way that you could almost hedge your bets. You could say, well, actually, we're a theatre company, we're not a research institution. So therefore, we can do all of this kind of crazy thing that artists do. But on the other hand, we say, well, we're close enough to a research institution to say that we are quasi-research. So that gives us a different dimension. So it kind of (laughs) let us play both ends against each other in particular ways. In the paper, I tried to unpack that a little bit because I think it over the time has become more mature relationship with the more developed understanding of where the different roles and responsibilities have lain. And I tried in other articles to unpack, I've kind of called the epistemic systems that operate within Magnet as an institution. Magnet is primarily a theatre company. So when it puts on work, it's putting on the work in the art world in a way that other theatre companies produce work. But there's this other dimension which, which kind of folds back into the university context where it's being treated by university types in different kinds of ways. And so there are different fora and different discussions and levels of discussion that are going on that wouldn't happen if we didn't have that relationship to the university. I always felt that in the arts and certainly in the performing arts, which have this collaborative dimension to them, that we were very similar to the way that the health sciences or the sciences operate, where the research tends to be in teams and collaborative and that we should look and see how they function in laboratory context. So for me, Magnet was set up in my mind, not originally when we started the company, but certainly from the time that I became more aware of how research operated in the university. It was set up as a kind of laboratory, as a studio setup that could provide the space for multiple research projects to be running and provide infrastructure and support and resourcing for those projects. 
one of the things that it did certainly is provide space. So it provided a physical laboratory space in which work could happen that could be independent of the university when it needed to be and could draw on the university when it needed to. It also provided administrative support, funding support for multiple projects. And then we tried to thread through these spaces particular research themes which would be decided on in advance and then would run for a number of years. And these research themes, various people could intersect with the themes in different ways. So, for example, if the theme was migration, as it was for a period of time, some of the productions that were done under that umbrella were done by me, but some also done by Mandla Mbotwe. And so between Mandla, Jenny Resnick and myself, who are the three artistic directors of the company, we were able to explore in different ways under the same umbrella research theme. But also what we could do, as now is more the case, is we could diversify and have multiple researchers running. So if Jenny's research is more connected to early years performance and the issues of cognitive development in newborn babies and how the theater and performance can interact with that, Mindless might be more involved with the performance of heritage and questions of community memory and those parts and aspects of our society that have not been given the kind of prominence that he feels they should have been since the changes occurred in the country. And mine has shifted from being about historiography and remembering to migration and then on to translation. I think the structure of the company provided facilities and resources that the university generally can't do. It's a platform where things can happen that the university is too limiting to contain. Yet I'm interested, just to go back to that statement in your vision, the Magna Theatre vision, you talk about celebrating the spirit of research. (laughs) Yeah, I remember doing the workshop where we were trying to come up with these visions and missions and all of these kinds of things. It was quite a long time ago. I imagine we were we were trying to come up with verbal formulations that tried to capture the idea of research without being too definitive. So in a sense, what I think we were trying to leave open with the idea of it being a spirit of research rather than research itself was the possibility that we could be taken seriously as a theater company as well as potentially as a research organization. I think part of the problem with this hybrid kind of forms of research that fit between different worlds is that if you are a theater company that is based in an institution like a university, you're not often taken seriously by the artistic community because you kind of just a university-based theater company, if you like. And if you are in the arts, and you say you're doing research, the university doesn't take you seriously because you're a bit dilettantish. You're not really a serious professional researcher. I think we're trying to be on the border between both. I've often argued that we're on the border also with the world of activism. We sit with one foot in the academy, one foot in the arts industry, and one foot in the activist community. And that kind of space is very fluid. And so we're shifting around taking different perspectives on things depending on who we're talking to, which audience we happen to be talking to at that particular moment. And so I can only imagine that the idea of a spirit of research suggests that we didn't want to make a claim for like an institutionalized academic status, but rather that we were artists who liked to think about the work we were doing. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you've very successfully straddled those shifting borders in both your work as an academic and also what I know to have come out of Magnet's theatre work and productions. I want to push a bit further on alliances within the institution around research. And I found it very interesting that you found a commonality with the sciences, particularly the medical sciences, because of their emphasis on collaborative work, on practice. And at the same time, you've spoken out very strongly against the hegemony of the text. And isn't the sort of automatic alliance that's presumed between the creative arts and the humanities a problem when it comes to that hegemony of the text? Because the humanities are structured around a reverence for sacred texts. Whereas the sciences don't have that kind of reverence. The the emphasis is on practice. The emphasis is on questioning. The emphasis is on finding new ways of doing things in a way that it seems to me the humanities are fundamentally resistant to. I think that's an interesting point. And as you say, we assume certain things also because of where we tend to be placed in university structures. Here at UCT, we had a big debate at one point in history when they were redesigning the faculty structures, whether the performing creative arts should be a faculty on their own or whether they should be part of the humanities. This went for a school. We didn't. I think the jury's out. I don't feel that one or the other is the best solution under the circumstances. But I do think that the kind of assumption that the performing and creative arts fall easily within humanities is something to be questioned at the very least. What I do enjoy about the sciences is the spirit of experimentation at the heart of that work, the way they work in teams, the way they structure their research processes, the kinds of collaborative processes and acknowledgement. I mean, people get their names on papers, 50, 60 authors, paper and you can build up, whereas the humanity is very built around single author papers. And that's very problematic when we write about our work in, say, the theater, where you know that you've worked on something with a whole bunch of people, but you write it as if, you know, it was yours. So that sense of private ownership of the research is always rankled a little bit in relation to the way we practice. So that I like about the sciences. What I'm not always thrilled about is their positivist research cultures, their belief in truth and those kinds of things, which I don't think we take to very easily. I think our research tends to be more open-ended. And that's why I like some of the new biology. And I use that metaphorically in a lot of my work, because I think at the cutting edge of the philosophy of science, there is a very open-endedness and a kind of questioning of, of single truths, which isn't necessarily very prevalent amongst rank and file of the scientific community. On the other hand, as you say, the humanities is very tied to the notion of text and a kind of hermeneutic tradition of research, that there is this meaning somehow inherent in the work and that we need to dig into it in some way to find that intrinsic meaning. And that forces us constantly to think about the work that we do in relation to texts. And it produces certain kinds of acrobatics to turn what is, in my view, not textual into the kind of textuality. And I understand why it's done, and I understand that it's helpful in terms of the kinds of processes that universities use to develop value within the research cycle. I wrote in the paper about this drive to economization, which is built on quantitative measures and 
as a result, a kind of depreciation of the qualitative within the research evaluation. And so value is recorded uh, on the basis of quantity, not of quality. You know, that, that is concerning to me across the whole uh, system, whether that's from the sciences or the humanities. But the humanities does have this text problem for me. And also the single researcher paradigm, which I don't think fits very easily within a lot of art practice. Even visual artists who tend to sit in their studios and paint or make sculpture or whatever, work with assistance of one kind or another all the time. And there's a far greater degree of collaboration there than tends to be the case with most humanities disciplines. I think we sit in the middle somewhere. I think we have a research culture all of our own. It's just that from an economic point of view, universities don't see us as a big enough unit to give us the kind of space to develop those cultures independently. That's one of the biggest frustrations for me of the choices made at UCT to keep the arts in the humanities, because we were never able to develop the kinds of systems and practices and modes independently that allowed us to to have a sense of the work's own integrity. We've always shifting and molding the stuff to fit into pre-existent molds that have been set up for other disciplines. I can see why the arts and the humanities often get together, but I do see the limitations of it on a research level. Mark, you've spoken very strongly against the hegemony of the text. In fact, in your paper at the Aura Conference, you talk about capitulating to the logic of the text. If we capitulate to the logic of the text, we are behaving unethically. Can you expand on that from your experience with theatre, with performance, with the role of the body and movement as a site of knowledge? Well, first of all, to say that I think in the paper, that thing of capitulating to the hegemony of the text is very much me quoting Simon Jones. So before I claim certain things that don't belong to me, I think that is a position that was taken in Simon Jones's article that I was using as the basis for my discussion. What I was trying to push for is precisely an understanding that a lot of the work we do in performance particularly does not render itself easily as a finished, contained product that we could call a text. So in the semiotics, what happened was that they started to apply notions of text to all kinds of different activities, right? So an advert that you would see on a billboard would be a text. And in the same way, a dance would become a text or a theater piece would become a text. Now, that's not to say in theater, I understand they are plays, they are written, those are texts. But theater is far more than the text that it's based on, right? The performance itself expands way beyond the text. The text is just one element in that performance. So to reduce it all down to text, either literally, as in this is a text, or in a kind of quasi way, this is a quasi text, produces a certain kind of logic and a certain kind of understanding that is driven by textuality. There are many other people, Dwight Conkergood, for example, and Desoto, who argue very clearly that the university and the institutions of academia are essentially scriptocentric institutions that favor and give value to things that can be reduced to texts. Whereas there are a whole lot of other practices of everyday life which do not reduce to text in that way. And there is a politics to this elevation of certain practices to the academy and the denial of other practices, reduction done. Now, 
in the performance realm, there has been a tendency, and it's particularly prevalent within the post-colonial context, to reduce a whole lot of performance activity to what might be called folk tradition. So these kinds of practices of song and physicality and dress and various other kinds of things are understood to be part of culture as opposed to being part of the art. So art does draw on culture, but ultimately art has apparently some kind of elevated status that is separate from this other thing called culture, which is tied to a kind of, let's call it a folk tradition. And we need to work very actively to counter that, to resist the notion that so much of the practices that we are engaged in are not intellectual, are somehow not part of academia. So that's been very much my thing, is that if we reduce everything down to text, there are a whole lot of things that we leave behind. And I believe those choices have been built into the structure for political reasons. I also believe that the text becomes the unit that is used in this economization of research output. So as long as we can count the output as a text, we can make it equivalent to, say, a journal article or a book. But there's something that is intrinsically different about artworks. I can see how you can see them metaphorically as texts, but they're not texts. I'm also interested in Tim Ingold's use goes back to the to the root of the word and said there's a difference between textility and textuality, where textility is very much about the actual texture of things, materiality of things, rather than uh, textuality, which is the reduction of things to the text. And so I'm interested in how we can keep that materiality, that textility alive in the work that we do. I think the non-reduction to text, though, opens the work up to an interesting kind of development which comes back to what I was talking about when the, the artwork is trapped. The text tracks the artwork in a way that makes it, one, the, the sole preserve of the person who produced the works, the so-called individual researcher, but it also traps the work in a way that it stops it from evolving in the way that it naturally wants to evolve. Artworks go out into the world and they do the things that they do, and people respond to them in different kinds of ways. So if Magnet produces a work, Magnet produces a work, and Magnet has its own reasons and its own results from that work. But once the work is out there, the work is out there, and what other people make of it is what they make of it. And that makes the work grow. So the work has a life that expands way beyond its initial conceptualization. And I think that's the real richness of artistic research, is the way that it can expand and be utilized and understood from different perspectives by so many different researchers. So the whole research exercise becomes something far bigger than the single ownership of a single researcher, which is very much that humanities tradition. Yes. Very sympathetic to your analysis, Mark, but I think we could agree one of the primary requirements of research is that it should be disseminated so that other researchers can engage with it, so that it can be developed, it can be taken further. But particularly with performance, if it's not in some way reduced to a text, how is it to be disseminated? Are we talking about very poor Smacra, like a bad video recording of a stage performance. How, how does one capture that? In another of your articles, you speak about the importance of repetition and that knowledge is gained through repeating the performative act. 
how is that kind of knowledge to be captured and more importantly disseminated after the fact or can't it? Well, it's an interesting challenge. I don't have all the answers. These are the paradoxes that we have to engage with as researchers. I feel like time operates differently with different kinds of practices. The things exist for longer in certain forms than they do in other forms. Performance and theater particularly, dance, those kinds of things only really exist for the moment that they're being done, right? So when they stop being done, then they don't exist anymore on some level. I mean on some level because there are certain levels that they do obviously continue to exist even when they're not being performed. But I'll come back to that just now. In the first instance, if a run of a play is happening over a period of three weeks, let's say, and we're doing the production every night, we like to think within the theater that we are, we are doing something unique every night. So even though we might be repeating the same script or the same set of moves or whatever and wearing the same costumes, each time there is something different about the performance because it's a live event that's happening in front of an audience and every night has its own rhythms and its own kind of dimension. So I would say the time there is is, is a very short time as opposed to, let's say, a work of art like painting that can have a much longer duration. It even exists when it's not being exhibited in a gallery. You know that someone has that painting, even if it's in a storeroom, whereas the theater production doesn't unless it's in that bad video. I don't think that those differences of time necessarily change the value of the research. You have long glacial times and you have very quick immediate times. They are different kinds of times and they produce different kinds of effects. So I think likewise research exists. What we have to try to think about is ways of thinking about expanding the duration of the impact of that research beyond the one or two times that the piece gets performed. I think about iconic plays. Let's take a play like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, for example. Yes, it's a play. Yes, it's written by Samuel Beckett, and you can go to a library and you can get the book or you can buy it in a bookshop and it's there. But at the same time, the, the, the production history of Waiting for Godot is so wide and so diverse over so many years and everybody who comes to it, and when I say Waiting for Godot, you, you get pictures in your head, well, if you're a certain kind of person at least, of particular productions that you, that you might have seen. And so it has its own particular picture in your mind's eye. That creates a world. That is a rich and evolving research object for me. And many people intersect with it in many ways all the time, in writing, in performance, as spectators, in reception studies, all of these kinds of things. And for me, that is a hugely valuable dissemination of research. For me, the question is, how do we work harder to keep those objects that we produce active? And obviously, there are a whole lot of economic issues at play. There are a whole lot of like limitations that are opposed, imposed by, by geography, for example, and by the publishing industry. So certain things get better documentation than other things get. So the bad video can be improved upon. It's just a question of what resources you have at your disposal. This coronavirus thing that we're living through at the moment raises that issue very much at this moment because immediately that one turns to the internet to look for materials to use in courses in the university in online learning of some kind, you immediately get pushed back into a kind of hegemonic database of available materials that have been produced through the Euro-American Academy. 
That's where the resources lie. That's where the publishing industries sit. And that's where the material is now sitting. So even though we might, from an African perspective, be trying to redesign the curriculum to be more responsive to our post or neo-colonial realities, when an emergency like this sets in, we realize how deeply controlled the access to material is in the various platforms that are available at the moment. How do we elevate, how do we bring to the attention of a, of a wider community across Africa as a continent in the first instance, but then across the world, the works that we are producing in this way? I think that the very valuable work, that the really good work that is being produced by researchers through the arts will remain in the repertoire, if you like, will remain in the minds of people producing the work, whether it's locked into a textual form or not. Obviously, forms of textuality are useful, but I'm more sanguine, I suppose, about the idea that these things should be allowed to just do what they do. I get people talking about productions that I did or even papers that I wrote when I was a master's student. And those are like cited left, right and center. And I get embarrassed sometimes because they're such early developments in my research trajectory. I think, oh my God, why is that paper still out there? The same thing with the work. The work goes out and it does what it does and people respond to it. And, and that for me is, is powerful in terms of an ongoing conversation around research. I would be less concerned with we need to have this thing and we need to log it and we need to put it into its archive and we need to, you, you know what I mean? I think that's, I'm not suggesting that archiving work is not valuable. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm also saying that things will fall out of the archive and in the archive and shift around the archive. And that's the nature of all archives of all time. And that's cool for me. I don't have a crisis of value. Talking of value, another issue that I think we need to engage with, obviously it has been a matter of intense debate over the last decade, is the question of value. And if artistic research should be valued in terms of how successfully it is rated or received in the art world, or is the question of value to be decided as research within the accreditation systems of the university or the academy. How has your experience with a foot in both worlds, what has that led you to think about the question of value? If just to expand a bit on that, there is a sense that artistic research projects in the university can quite often run into the danger of producing work that isn't valued outside of that context. I think of sort of exhibitions that only exist as part of a PhD submission and never impinge or impact in any way on the outside gallery world. And similarly, I think with drama productions, how have you experienced value in this, these two fields? Well, I think value is different in both fields. And that's why one does need to keep one's mind agile in jumping between the two different worlds. I mean, it's quite clear to me that there is lots of theater that happens outside of the academy, which would not, in my view, pass muster as research, but is hugely successful from an audience perspective and from a critical perspective even for the things that it does do. And then I'm also aware that there's a lot of very interesting work that is produced within the context of the academy that would not draw a particularly wide or popular audience 
and yet from an academic perspective is of great interest intellectually and maybe even might become forms that will be picked up on in the art world, so to speak, at a later day. I think that we need to ask ourselves where we're standing at the particular point that we ask the question about value. Because even what I find valuable and what anybody else finds valuable is not necessarily the same. I think that there is a lot of value in a process of intellectualization or a process of thought that is developed through practice itself. So I'm less interested in necessarily the product or the output per se on a research level than I am on the way we got there or the process that unfolded along the way. And this is something that's quite interesting now in terms of teaching postgraduate students in this lockdown is that a lot of the time we have to accept that the work will not find, certainly not the form that it was intended to find initially, live performance is not necessarily possible and there's always some degree of mediation now necessary. And that the people that are doing the work didn't get accepted on the basis of their ability to cut film together or to make interesting multimedia presentations. They live performers or live makers of one kind or another. And now the thing that characterizes their work has been taken away from them. But what is really interesting is that the focus now falls on the process of development and on the kinds of thought that is happening and the discussions that are going on and the kind of conceptualizations and imaginations that are at play. And I think that's when artistic research really comes into its own. I wrote an article recently for the Routledge Companion to Political Theatre called The Slow Politics of Theatre. And I was interested in the politics of the slow. I was interested, ironically, this was before we were all slowed or stopped uh, by coronavirus, but I felt that the drive to production is actually limiting in terms of research. It does not produce the kind of interesting thought that research seems to require, which is understood to be important in relation to the question of value. So for me, what is interesting now is that, well, once we accept that we cannot get to a point of producing the finished object, we really start to focus on other things. And it's those other things that I think is where the real value of artistic research lies. So we are in the process of doing, so the, the unfolding of the artwork itself produces a whole lot. And in my original answer to your question, I was looking at the question around assemblages. I was talking about scale and I was talking about the difference between looking at your work from a molecular perspective where you're taking one small moment in a process and unpacking that versus the very long view of multiple works existing over a long duration versus the production or formation level, the molar level for Deleuze, where, where we're looking at production or project after project after project, and where the focus tends to fall on the output. So for me, the very small and the very long or the very big are much more interesting because they focus less on the finished thing than on the evolving thing. And it's the evolving thing, the thing that doesn't quite have completion or certainty about it that I think produces the most interesting research in artistic research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, Mark. Thank you for that. One last question is, should we be thinking and discussing such a broad entity as artistic research or arts-based research, or should we be considering research in the different traditions of practice? let's say, the theatrical or the dramatic 
tradition or the fine arts tradition or the creative writing tradition. It seems to me, and this is a point Annette Arlander has made very strongly, that by trying to see them all together as forms of artistic research, we're actually losing what is specific and most interesting in those different forms of research activity based on specific art traditions. What is your thought about that? I can see the the point. I think there's an element of solidarity behind the artistic research thing that's trying to say that well that we'll have more political sway within institutions if we all hang together. But there's also significant differences in culture within different disciplines. Uh, whether that should be the case or not is another thing to discuss. But that is what has been produced over a number of years by the specific discipline formation. And I do think that there is a different kind of specificity that is produced through the notion of performance itself, which is a live event, as you said, with a high degree of what might be called ephemerality versus the object-based stuff that you find in the visual arts. You know what I mean? So, But then the question of presence as well is slightly different in all the different art forms. And although we quite clearly have points of intersection or commonality, we also have differences, and we need to acknowledge those differences. That uh, working group that you referred to earlier, which Annette was also part, was a performance as research working group, was clearly focused on performance. And Annette was interesting because she was kind of a performance artist coming from a hybrid background, which was essentially visual arts oriented or based initially, but then she was teaching within a theatre academy in Finland. So what is interesting is that space in between. I think we've kind of become more accustomed to that space in between in recent years. And that space in between has been seen as more sexy in some ways than the, the disciplines themselves. But I do think that masks to some degree the specificity of the disciplines. And we have to pay attention to that if we are going to really engage seriously with what research is and how the arts practice intersects with it. I do believe that we wear many hats. People like you and I have jobs in universities. We have responsibilities to our students. We have responsibilities to our colleagues. We work in concert with or in conversation with other colleagues from other departments. And we try to make systems that people can work within and that are manageable in terms of them achieving their desires and goals, like getting their degrees or developing their careers as academics. At the same time, we're artists and we are trying to think what's best for our own arts practice and our own research and the disciplines we come from. So we have to be clear about where we're coming from. We're often making decisions with the first hat on, which the second hat is finding a little bit difficult. But that's the challenge. And I think the generation that comes after us is going to have to sort this all out and try to come up with modes and practices that make sense to them in the emerging arena of uh, academic art practice. Mark, thank you very much. I think that's a great open-ended, challenging point to end on. And this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Mark Fleischmann, Professor in the Department of Drama at UCT and Artistic Director of Magnet Theatre 
an independent theatre company he established together with his wife, Jenny Resnick, in 1987. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.